History, Lecture 91. So up in Amsterdam, uh, Amsterdam becomes a center of activity. We're going to hear a lot of uh, names there. I don't know about you, but my internal picture of history as it unfolds has, let's say, it's like a colored map that at different times in history, the colors in certain geographic regions grow darker. And so Amsterdam is going to be one of those, one of those uh, central places for the coming few generations. Uh, there's a figure by the name of Uriel de Costa, who I'm going to describe. His dates are 1585 to 1640. So he was among the, a group of Portuguese conversos. I mean, that's an expression we hear a lot of. I've already introduced several people who fit that bill. Uh, we're going to be more of them today, too. Um, and uh, it makes sense, right? They, they were refugees from Spain. They went to Portugal. And they, um, it, they converted. But like many, they're skeptical of Catholicism. It doesn't make much sense to them. It was, it was forced upon them. And um, they started inquiring about Judaism. And they asked to be reaccepted. There was a procedure because on a certain level they were perceived as having betrayed Torah and betrayed the formal Jewish community, uh, but they are re-accepted. In 1617 they flee to Amsterdam and become part of what's called the Portuguese, the Portuguese Sephardi community in Amsterdam. Now, this is true of Uriel de Costa, it's true of actually a lot of Portuguese conversos. We meet an occasional Tanakhachem, but he learns some Torah. Not much, but he thought he'd learned a lot. Wait, he and like, Jewish at this point he, they were all Jewish. Converso, they've been re-accepted as, as part of the Jewish community. And he learned a little bit, enough to think that he knew something, which he really didn't. He was an Amaharitz. But uh, yeah, uh, that's a situation we're familiar with today, too. Uh, a lot of people assert themselves as knowing Torah. They don't necessarily. The Kutzker Rebbe has a great line. He says, I'd rather deal with a Russia who thinks he's a Russia than a tzaddik who thinks he's a tzaddik. At least the Russia has a, you know, has, has, a, has a reasonable view of himself. But the so-called tzaddik who thinks of himself as a tzaddik, that's already, something's wrong with that. Somebody I was talking to recently described himself as in, let's say, lofty terms. And struck me as a little bit irregular. If you really are that lofty, it would seem to me you'd never use that term about yourself. So um, he's somebody who starts thinking, and he has problems with the establishment of the Amsterdam Sephardi community, and he goes disillusioned. And in 1624, seven years after they arrived in Amsterdam, he writes a book. And the book is very critical. It's critical of Torah, critical of Torah ideas. It, is, it saves, he says, particular words of venom for certain local Jewish leaders. Uh, he either refers to them by name but more commonly just by inference, and everybody knows who, who uh, he's talking about. And the result of the book, something that happens, um, is they put, uh, they put him in Cherem. Not just the book, they put the man in Cherem. They also find him. They, the, uh, I have to appreciate this. In pre-modern Jewish communities, even in places like Amsterdam, which are more assimilated, the Jewish community did have a certain amount of power sovereignty over its subjects, and they could do stuff like this. They could put you in harem, which meant you were ostracized, and that had serious ramifications for you and your family. Um, they could force you to pay money, which they did. They also had public book burnings, which is not the first time we've seen such a thing, of his books. 
Um, the fact that they put him in a cherub has, as we saw with Martin Luther, has the undesired effect of actually uh, causing interest. And what happens is Uriel de Costa attracts a following of sympathizers. About Torah and the Jewish community in Amsterdam, and it wasn't flattering. Is it a real book? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Are you just defending people? Uh huh. Well, from a critical perspective, this is really this is too early, <coughs> the early 1600s. It's not the Enlightenment yet, but it's pre-Enlightenment kind of stuff. It's setting a ground. It's setting, he's one of the first personalities. I mean, again, this is very early. He's really one of the early personalities that we can see as part of this movement that's going to emerge of enlightenment that's going to lead to reform and, and free-spirited people. And, and that it's emerging in Western Europe is not a coincidence either. Why do you um, I don't have enough here to go into it. And don't really want to. Meaning, I'm describing, I think his significance for us is not so much I didn't really know what he's talking about so it, you know to take such a person seriously on the level of his ideas is, is not really appropriate um, but to recognize that this kind of stuff is starting to happen in this period and as early as the 1600s that already is uh, that's significant for us because it's not he's certainly not going to be the last he's, he's uh, paving the way in fact for a whole, a whole uh, avalanche of Jews to do similarly Jews and non-Jews as well we know the Christian world had similar personalities, and we said this, we talked about the Protestant Reformation, the fact that you had a figure like Martin Luther rise up and challenge the organized religion of the church. So, you know, that paves the way for people like Ariel de Costa to do much the same with the Jewish uh, organized uh, community. Now, uh, he attracts a following, but he's in Cherem, and he's a wandering Jew, and he sets about wandering for seven or eight years. Uh, that doesn't... That's not very good for you. Uh, when you have, it's, and in the modern world today, you can take a backpack and you know, take a hotel room. Uh, this is not so, you know, it's not like the non Jewish society was yet prepared to take in a Jew, so he was homeless and, uh, and, and without means. And eventually he returns and he repents because what were his options? He makes chuva, or so it seems he makes chuva, but within six months, he goes back to his old ways. And he's, by this point, he's got a following, and he starts speaking out against, again, organized religion, and... and, and uh, Six months, though, is a really good time. Right, right. So, okay, so um, he is now... The, the, the organized community uh, puts out a more severe harem. You know, harem is subjective. They can choose what your... Uh, you know, what level you're ostracized from the community. So, so it, it, they can up, up the ante, and that's exactly what they do. Uh, he, they, one, of his, one of the punishments is they bring him to the Portuguese synagogue, which still exists. Has anybody been to Amsterdam? So you can visit the famous old Portuguese Sephardi synagogue today. We'll be telling a few stories that are relevant there. So they bring him into the Portuguese synagogue, and they administer publicly 39 lashes. Right, Makos. Yes, they are. The, the, the rabbis have the discretion. It's called Makos Marbus. They have they have the discretionary right to administer lashes, especially in a situation like this. This kind of a figure, as we're going to see very soon, is is potentially this is incendiary. This is this is the kind of thing that can completely subvert the Jewish community. And in fact, to a large degree, we look around the world today. These kinds of uh, Creeps. These kind of individuals did exactly that, so that they, they have a harsh, strong response is called for. There's no Sanhedrin, though. Right. So it doesn't have to be. 
No, they didn't give rabbinical lashes. They gave 39 symbolic lashes. They're not the smartest. It's rabbinic lashes. That much, they, they have that, that power. But you remember that, maybe you're thinking of this, that Rabbi Yaakov Beira wanted to reinstitute smicha um, a few decades earlier, almost, almost a century earlier, um, because then with smicha you could administer makos diraisa, which afforded a great thing. It, it came in place of kares. Right. This these kinds of well, makos don't. These are rabbinic, yeah. So it's a different different. Wait, not only these are punitive. These not, are to make a public statement. That would only solidify his and his followers' beliefs, though. Well, we say that now because we're living in times where this stuff. You know, we have perfect historical hindsight. And we can figure out that's what's going to happen. But you realize it's a whole new world. This post-Protestant Reformation, free-spirited, anti-organized religion world. We're so used to, and so naturally, you tell me, you know, you push, I pull. That's our mentality. But I don't think in Amsterdam in the 17th century, the early 17th century, they really appreciated that, and they knew that there would be ramifications. They th they quite they thought, like the church putting Martin Luther in there, they thought reasonably that no, this would quash it. This would this would put it out, and and they would put it into Ariel de, Uriel de Costa and any other sympathizers and other people who would rise up and try to say it. Right, okay, so, you know, easy for us to say now, right? If we all had historical hindsight, then we wouldn't make the mistakes that we make in history. I, I mean, assuming that they made a mistake, who's, who, who knows? Maybe had they not done anything, it would have been worse. It's all hypothetical. In any case, at this point, the man becomes mentally unbalanced. And it's documented, and he, he, he does a bunch of really uh, crazy things. And at this point, his cause has champions, people like underdogs, and so he attracts a following, greater following, uh, even Hashem, we know, likes underdogs. The under, underdogs, the pasuk in Kohelis tells us, Hashem uh, seeks out the pursued, the persecuted. Um, it, the thing blows over into full-scale conflict without a clear resolution, and it ends when suddenly, out of nowhere, completely un, un, unex, unexpected, Uriel de Costa committed suicide. And that was the end of the episode, but it's really the beginning. And his example, his, his whole story will be replicated in the form of soon coming up of Baruch Spinoza. But as I said, not just in Amsterdam, but in general the Jewish world, the Enlightenment, and those who would seek to challenge and rebel against organized Jewish leadership, rabbinic leadership, uh, we're, seeing, we're seeing the beginning of something that's a phenomenon until today. Now, an interesting figure, younger, by uh, about 19, by 19 years, uh, but but also a converso from Portugal, from Portuguese Jewish family that was that were conversos is a figure by the name of Menashe Ben Yisrael, and he came to to the Netherlands with his family. They were actually descendants of the Abarbanel. He came when he was a child. Um, they make tshuva as well. He, unlike Uriel de Costa, Menashe Ben Yisrael becomes a, a genuine Talmud Chacham. He's the real deal. He's the real article. Uh, he eventually is appointed the Rav of Amsterdam's Sephardi community when he's 18 years old. He's obviously very, very talented. Which means he was clearly part of the organized resistance to Uriel, Uriel de Costa. He also was apparently a master of the sciences. He spoke 10 languages. I mean, he's an unusual personality. At the age of 18? Eventually, I don't know if he had. I don't know if he had, had done all of these things, but 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 I mean, we would call such a person a prodigy. 
not, not the first, not, not the first prodigy we've met. He was a personal friend of um, Rembrandt, we mentioned yesterday as well. In fact, Rembrandt famously draw, drew his portrait and um, helped Menashe Ben Yisrael publish his works. So Amsterdam is kind of, uh, the experience of Jews here is new. And maybe uh, for, for uh, uh, a premonition of what's going to be in the Western world is Jews will start very gradually uh, receiving acceptance by their non-Jewish neighbors. And um, he has uh, holds a certain position of privilege and prestige. People respect him and his greatness. And he takes advantage of that. In 1655, near the end of his life, he contacted Oliver Cromwell over across in the English, in the British Isles. Why is that so familiar? Oliver Cromwell was part of the revolution in England at the time, in the British, in the British Empire. And um, he petitions Cromwell to allow Jews to return to England for the first time formally since the expulsion took place almost half a millennium ago. You remember when we last saw the Jews in Britain, at an informal level, they had been expelled entirely. And even though stragglers may have uh, persisted or returned, uh, they were not officially allowed. And so um, it was Rabbi Menashe ben Yisrael who tries to change that. What was his motivation? Why did he do that? He held a belief that is not so clearly true. Uh, certainly re requires some understanding. It doesn't seem to have a precedent in Jewish sources. But he understood that in order for Mashiach to come, the Jews had to be present in all four corners of the world. He was medayik that if part of the Messianic era is, is kibbutz galios, is the ingathering of the exile, well, then that means that before that ingathering, we have to be outgathered. We have to be uh, dispersed. And as such, they got to be up in, in, in the British Isles and presumably elsewhere as well. And um, Cromwell agrees. And indeed, some Jews start coming to Britain, and it's the beginning of the, the new, more contemporary uh, Jewish community in the, uh, on the British Isles. Uh, they're allowed to keep certain mitzvahs there. <laughs> they're allowed to keep mitzvahs. Technically, they have problems. There's persecution, but that's true all over. Uh, there's, it's not smooth. The members of English, the British par Parliament protest. Um, It'll take about another century or so for the Jews to be officially admitted back as a government law, but uh, Rav Menashe ben Yisrael is the beginning of that phase. Um, meanwhile, to the east, a few more great figures who are younger than the other Polish Jews we met yesterday. Uh, we meet Rav David Halevi Segal, who is known to us and known to all of history as the author of the Ture Zahav, or as it's abbreviated, the Taz. The great Taz, who marries the daughter of the Bach, we met the Bach yesterday, the Bach who was uh, buried in Krakow, uh, and often actually refers to his father-in-law in his, in his psaac. The Taz is staple work, again, in your career, when you go off and you learn in Kolel, you start learning Halacha, the Taz is indispensable. It covers, um, I mean, people learn, let's say, for what we call today smicha, they learn a lot of yoridea. So the yoridea, you, you can't understand the yoridea without the commentaries of the taz, and then the next figure I'm going to describe, the shach. Shach and taz, taz and shach, that's what people are talking about in kolels. The, as the name implies, Turi Zahab, it also is a commentary on the Bach, excuse me, on the tour itself. 
to raise Ahab, the golden tour. So he, his commentary covers both works. It, it was published in 1646, and two years later, his family, and he, of course, are forced to flee the Cossacks, because what's coming up around the corner is what I refer to as this generation's Shoah, Holocaust, uh, is Tachvetat. <laughs> and they're refugees from Tachvetat. They eventually will return to Poland, uh, but not before two of his sons are killed in riots that, that break out in Lemberg, Poland in 1664 as an uh, indirect result of the, of the various events racking Eastern European Jewry. One thinks of the Taz, and uh, one thinks also of the Shach, of Shabsai Cohen. The Taz, he, his dates are 1586 to 1667. So he had a nice long life. The Shach actually was, uh, died very young. He's much younger. He, his dates are 1621 to 1662. But like many of these, it's interesting, so many figures from this period led short lives and impactful lives. So consider that in just 41 years, this is what the Shach accomplished. The Sifte Cohen is the, is the Shach stands for Sifte Cohen. Um, first of all, he was married to the great-granddaughter of the Ramah. So there's an interconnectedness of all these great personalities, family, and so on. Um, we said already in his commentary on the, on the Yoridea and, and, uh, and other books, is, is uh, one of the classics till today. He has comments elsewhere. Here's a true story about him. He was uh, part of a Dean Torah, Dean uh, Mamonos. People, he had to go to the base Dean over a uh, financial dispute. And he represented his own case. And because he knew Gantz Shas, he knew all of the Torah, and he certainly he knew all of the Choshen Mishpat, he presented his side beautifully. I mean, can you imagine? You're, the, you're on trial, and you know this sugya. You're, you're the Shach himself. And he drew broadly from Shas and Poskim and, and wowed the audience. And um, when the Psak Dean was finally rendered by the base Dean, it turned out the Shach lost. And he asked the Dayan afterwards if he could explain, you know, what was the logic behind the, the, the Psaq, the ruling. And the Dayan said, well, I have a, an excellent, highly reputed safer. And he proceeded to produce the Shach on the Choshen Mishpat. And the Shach had forgotten his own argument. And how do we know this story? The Shach himself, in his humility, later wrote it up. Meaning, even though it kind of makes him look foolish, it's not at all. He was using it to demonstrate, and I think I, I told the story, didn't I, Ingemar? He uses it to demonstrate the idea, an idea that some of us have, have, have learned um, in Makos, Adam Karov Etzalatzmo, a person is close to himself, and he explains the idea, one of the reasons where Apostle Edus is, remember, remember the sugya on, uh, near the end of the first parak? Where the, one of the aid can't be his own, the victim can't be his own aid because he's his own karov. That ring a bell with any of you in the in Makos? Yeah. So, um, so a person who's close to himself has his biases and ultimately is blind. And he said, "Look at me. I presented my whole case. I didn't realize that the whole svara against me was something that I myself wrote because I was so engr I was so engrossed, so immersed in my own point of view that I, I couldn't see any other way around it." Great story, great, very illustrious, very uh, in, in, informative about human nature. Um, 
the Shach has a famous, uh, on his commentary, there's a later great commentary written called the Primigodim, the Primigodim, uh, on, on the Shach. Uh, that's the source of, uh, of, of so much halacha. You know, if you learn, if you're Zochim to learn halacha, you learn the Mishnabura, you'll hear these names constantly. The Shach, the Taz, the Primigodim, and others. Um, the Chidah, in describing the Shach, tells us that his extraordinary memory. Uh, Shach is one of these people who, you know, read a book and knew it forever from that point. Um, he said his, he, if you read the Shach, he learned a vast number of earlier sparring. Unprecedented almost. He said at his young age, you know when he completed his work the, on, on the Shach, he completed it when he was 24 years old. Uh, again, we said he died when he was 41. The Chidah says all of this was, when he describes Me'al Teva, it was beyond nature. Uh, it's all the more extraordinary when you consider the times in which they lived. Uh, now we've talked about the people. Let's go back and talk about what are called in history. We refer to them by the Hebrew dates, Tach V'tat. Tach v'tat make up on the, on the secular calendar, that would be 1648 to 1649. 1648 to 1649. But that's misleading. It's tach v'tat. Those are the two initial harsh years. But there would be, like any explosion, there will be any number of aftershocks and after explosions. And um, really, the whole ordeal con uh, continues all the way until the 1660s. And it's fairly sim simple to summarize. Whereas the Shoah is more complicated, and we'll have to spend a little more time on the Shoah. Uh, this generation's Shoah was like this. It was led, like many of these events are led, um, by, uh, by, by one individual, by one evil individual. In this case, it was a Cossack by the name of Bogdan Shmilnitsky, sometimes pronounced Chelmenitsky, who joins forces with a group of an ethnic group called the Tatars in the area that we think of as Ukraine, Kiev, that, that general central east, excuse me, eastern uh, area that we think of as Western Russia today. Uh, now, of course, the Tatars uh, ally themselves with the local peasants who surround the countryside in what we think of as Ukraine, Galicia today, a lot of Eastern Poland, um, Slavic area, where the peasants there, even if they're not Tatars, even if they're not Khmelnytsky's uh, allies per se, but they're always game to go, hey, let's go kill a bunch of Jews. That, that's the, always find volunteers for that particular hobby. Um, the, in theory, the reason for their uprising was they were revolting against Polish nobility and the perceived corruption and the fact that they had to pay taxes to these to these noble people. Um, but since the Jews happened to be there, they would, as they almost always are throughout this phase of history, collateral victims. And their source of, uh, of extra money and food, you could go in and kill whole villages and make away with their money, you could rape their women, and uh, that's what they do. The event is associated with the date Chaf Sivan. Uh, the 20th of Sivan, when, when, when um, probably what's considered, let's say, the breakout of the, of the Shmelnitsky revolts, the Atakhvatat massacres, in 1648, the community of Nemirov is the first one to be totally destroyed. Can you imagine this? They go in and they destroy a community and they do it with impunity. 
Because there's no consequences. They just do it. And they know that they can do it, and they know they can get away with it. And the world will sit by passively, and that's the fate of the Jews, our family, uh, in these times, in most, most times in history. Um, you, you have to internalize this. I'm sorry, maybe I'm, I'm underlining this too much, but the world today doesn't realize this. And we're so used to thinking of ourselves as people with rights, as citizens, and the world has to recognize and they can't do that, and I'm going to sue. It, most of our um, collective lives as Jews, we were totally disempowered. Nobody cared. Nobody did anything, and there was no recrimination. And you go through an experience like Tach Tach, you, you feel utterly, utterly vulnerable in the world. Except for Kedosh So, the post came set this date as the tiniest. The people fast on this day. They would for a period. It's not done so much, but there are some people I've heard of who do continue to fast on Chaf Sivan as a logical commemoration of the whole period called Tach Tat. Um, the years that follow, especially the first two years, but even years after that, um, this is what our family members would be subjected to. Jews would be bur buried alive. They would bury mass pits and throw people inside and cover them. They'd be cut to pieces. They'd be forced to kill one another. The Shach describes it in the following words. Shach was one of the survivors of, the, of, of this period. He says, they chased all the Jews into the fields, into the, into the vineyards. The Rishayim there surrounded them in a circle. They stripped the Jews to their skin. They ordered them to lie on the ground. The Rishayim, the Shach continues, spoke to the Jews with a friendly and with consoling words. They said, why do you want to be killed, strangled and slaughtered like, an, like a korban to your God who poured, his, who poured out his anger upon you without mercy? mercy? Would it not be safer for you to worship our, God, our gods, our images, and our crosses? Clearly, the Shach is making a reference to Christianity. The perpetrators were mostly Russian Orthodox in this particular instance, and they tried to coerce the Jews to convert. And then, and then the persecutors conclude, we would form one people and we would reunite together. Why don't you come and convert? Uh, the Shach says, the holy people raises their, raised their voices together to the Almighty and they cried out Shema Yisrael in their defiance. And they didn't convert. And in fact, um, to the best of our knowledge, we don't have, if you remember during the Black Death, um, we don't have one instance, one record, at least of any group converting to Catholicism, even though that was the, uh, that was the pre uh, not just any, any, any uh, sect of Christianity, even though there was immense pressure to do so. One of the famous uh, Talmud Chachamim from this period is Rav Shimshon of Ostropol, who was, put it in the family connection, a great nephew of the Maharal of Prague. He was a Kabbalist. And he, together with 300 others, dressed up in their own shrouds, what we call Tachrichin, which is what a Jew is buried in. They put on Talesim, and they stand davening. That's an image that should stay in your mind. Shimon, Shimon of Ostropol, as they're davening, as the Cossacks set upon them, and this immensely di um, dignified tzaddik of, a, of an individual as he, as he went to his death, dying on Kedush Hashem. Um, the same day in Polno, we know that 10,000 Jews die on Kedush Hashem. It's the 3rd of Av in 1648. Um, because the records are crude, we really don't know exactly how many Jews perished. As few as 100,000, as many as 500,000. 
this will be more than all the Jewish casualties during the Crusades. It's more than Jewish casualties during the Black Death. 700 communities are estimated. It's estimated that they were massacred and pillaged. Um, this was in the Cossack region of what we call the Ukraine today. And we know that almost all the Jews in Ukraine, that's where my father's family come from, uh, the, the Jews of the Ukraine were almost totally wiped out, brushed off the map without any Holocaust museums built in the next generations to commemorate them. Uh, the cities of Krakow, Posen, Kalish, Lublin, Jews would perish there either by the sword or, see after this happens, it's not like there's a, the cavalry comes riding in to save you. Um, there's immediate harsh poverty and um, then when there's poverty, there's, immense, there's, there's intense disease that, that sets in and um, there's a cholera epidemic that, that lasts for, for years, and many are wiped out in the cholera epidemic. Because you got a picture, in war conditions, sanitation is one of the first things to leave. There's no sanitation, so disease spreads. Really, it's about 10 years. It's only after 1658 did they have it slowly, slowly start to subside. And things started to resume some kind of normal uh, routine. It was in 1661 that the Council of Vilna um, set several decrees in commemoration. They, they uh, made several decrees, for example, around weddings that you could, you had to limit the kind of simcha that you had in a wedding in commemoration of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the immense tragedy that befell the Jews. There was a figure, I talk about this a lot, there's a figure who survived. His name was Rabnosa Nata of Hanover. And uh, he was a student of the great Maharsha. Remember we met the Maharsha yesterday? Great commentary in the back of the Gemara. Um, who survived and he wrote the eyewitness accounts of all the massacres, having survived miraculously on his own. And um, it's his book that everybody uses to describe what it took taking place. And if people, Jews from around the world, want to understand what exactly took place, of Nussan, not of Hanover's book, was that one. Uh, and again, Mamash Pili Kloim, Miracles of Miracles, he, he survived. And one day after this, um, all of this, he was in shul, and he was in the middle of Shmon Esrei, and as he was davening Shmon Esrei, a stray bullet actually flew into the shul and um, hit him <coughs> and killed him. Was that? Uh-huh. Now, I tell this story because this is a story you don't usually hear. Feldheim didn't publish this version of the story, nor did any of the Jewish um, versions. We hear the opposite story most of the time, especially when we're, when we're meant to be inspired. As he was in the middle of Shmona's ray, he, he hugged the Sidur, and as he's diving, the, the bullet went right into the page of the Sidur and stopped right as it reached the Shema. And he was miraculously spared. That's the story. Isn't that the way you'd expect it to end? No? That's how most of these stories go. So what we have to say is that this is also part of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's world. And things like this happen, and especially it's compounded by the fact that, wow, you mean this figure survived the ordeals? He, he literally leapt through fire in Tachvitat and survived everything, only to be downed in the middle of Shmonas Ray while he's, while he's davening. Um, yeah, yeah, it's also part of Hashem's world. And like Rabbi Kiva says, train your mouth to say, Kol David Rahman And some of the time we can't explain it. It's like American Sniper. Oh, I can't tell you. I don't know anything about it. There was a sniper that was confirmed killed in Iraq. He had like 160 confirmed killed, and then he died. 
So you want, to, you want to derive that from this? I hear there, there is something like this. I, I think the message I'm trying to convey is more is more significant because I think we're sometimes done a disservice by these many Kirub stories. But I listen, Hashem does many miracles. I believe the stories. I'm not denying the stories, but they're just one of the verses. What happens in 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 our experience in the world? Often we can't explain what happens, and to our myopic way of looking at things, our short-sighted way of looking at things. Often things look backwards. Really. He he should have been spared. He was in Shmona's ray, but what does he mean should have been? I can't say that. I can't render judgment on what the way on a Kaddish Baruch was ways. I was thinking. I almost wanted to speak out when he was talking. Is he was telling a lot of the stories that came up in that discussion we had in the shul were along the lines of and the straight bullet went into the sidur and like that that kind of a story. And this is also part of <coughs> doesn't have an easy explanation. And in fact. I tell this story because this is part of Tach Vitat. Tach Vitat, this whole episode also lacks a clear explanation. I'll talk about one more figure associated with this time and then try to step back and understand, if we can, what's going on with it. The, um, I mentioned this figure just in Gemara yesterday. His name is Moshe Rivkis. Um, I think we have a, we have a, um, a Mishnah Burra lying around by chance. Mishnah Burra here up on the shelf. I don't see one. Okay. It, or on the page of the Shulchan Aruch, you see in both, both the Shulchan Aruch and in the Mishnah Burra. If you could picture the page of a, of a Mishnah Burra, in the top, um, usually outer corner, either on the right or left, depending which page you're on, um, outer corner, there's a perush called the Bear Hagola that gives you um, sources for the Pesach, tells you which Gemaras usually they come from, or whatever other source, if it's Osefta here, or a Medrash there, or usually a Gemara. Um, he'll cite the sources. That's Rav Moshe Rivkis. And um, he's a Talmud Chacham, he's a scholar, he's a, one of the Gedolim, and he survives this too. And he's one of the sources of what happened. He, for example, describes the fate of the Jews of Vilna. At one point, um, the Duke, who means the local governor, flees for his own life. They did stuff like that. You mean I'm threatened? I don't care about my subjects. I don't care that I, they elected me, or I, not elected, these days there's no election, but you know, but they're, I'm, in, I'm entrusted with the well-being of all of my subjects. I'm leaving town. Good luck to you folks. That was the attitude of most people in history. Um, the city now is defenseless, and here's Rav Moshe Rivkis' account. He says, on the 23rd of Tammuz, uh, the second of the year is 1655, almost the entire community had fled the town, we know that, in retrospect, the Cossacks would kill 45,000 people that day. Not just Jews, but certainly a lot of Jews. Uh, the Jews now, and this is typical of what happened in the history, they got caught in the crossfire because they're running for their lives. And they run um, towards opposing sources, and uh, uh, towards op opposing forces. And uh, he says, when we, when we came to Zamuts, which was in northwest Lithuania, we encountered the Swedes who were fighting the Cossacks and then killed us. Usually the enemy of, the, of my enemy is my friend, but the Jews are always everybody's enemy. So the Swedes were coming to, to fight against the Cossacks and the Jews were fleeing from the Cossacks and they, they ran into the Swedes who killed them. Uh, he says, uh, he, he quotes the Pasuk from Amos, just as a man who flees before a lion and meets a bear. <laughs> 
this to me also is a very attached, poignant image of Jews in history, running away from lions and running into bears. Um, listen to the same Rav Moshe Rivkis and listen to his view in Halacha and you understand what makes a person a man of emes. He held a view in the Hoshin Mishpat. It's a minority view. Uh, anybody who was there by chance, I gave a shear um, several weeks ago in the last snowstorm on um, non-Jews. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so listen to Rav Moshe Rivkis. He held the view that Chazal are, um, when they have their harsh words for non-Jews, they're not referring to most non-Jews, certainly not to most non-Jews that we know of today. They refer to the ancient Akum, Obde Kuchavim, those who worship stars. And he says, they don't believe, the reason why they were so evil, they deny Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. They deny that Hashem created the world ex nihilo, something from nothing. He says, these are not the non-Jews with whom we live. He said, those Jews, I'm quoting him, among whom we're scattered, do believe in God, they pray to the Borei Shemayim Ba'aretz, they pray to the creator of the universe, and for them, we're obl obligated to pray for their safety and to take care of them. Elsewhere, this is the part I just quoted the other day, elsewhere, he has a very harsh rebuke for any Jew who would cheat a non-Jew in business, which is, by the way, for prohibited anyway, but apparently something that Jews sometimes do, and they rationalize it, they justify it, they say, well, look at what the non-Jews have done to us historically, therefore I can make a, little bit, I can make a few extra dollars from the non-Jew. Comes the Baragola, and he says, he says, no, if you make money that way, you will never see a blessing from your efforts. You're going to be impoverished, quite the contrary. Now, just to underline this, here's a man who survived the Holocaust in those days, in the 17th century, who in theory should have only venom for his enemies. But in halacha, he said, no, no, no. The, the non-Jews with which we live, they're Christian, they believe, they be he's clearly referring to the Christians and the Muslims, and they believe in the Kaddish Baruch Hu. we can't cheat them, we can't, we, we, we're not referring to them with all the harsh statements, and he had this generosity of spirit that enabled him to see the truth and, and overcome what must have been, I mean, for most, for many people, we'd imagine feelings of vengeance, of anger against all non-Jews, and he, he didn't have that. Um, anybody been to Kiev? Not a place for a Jew, for anybody to go these days. You know, the Ukraine, Ukraine is exploding right now, right? Anybody what's going on there the last couple of years? Kiev is a little more safe, but it's still part of the Ukraine, not a happy place. Anyway, if you did visit Ukraine, you'd, you'd visit Kiev today. So um, you'd find, among other um, tourist sites, a large statue that still stands in the city square celebrating the heroic figure Bogdan Shmelnitsky, the Cossack who started all of these events. And the best comment on the subject, I think I have this from Rabbi Wine, he says, yeah, one man's butcher is another man's hero. Um, you'd think. I don't know. I'm, I'll sign it. You drop the paper, I'm there. Um, now, we have Zal and the post scheme provide us with ways of dealing with suffering. As I said, the major way we deal with suffering is called the Avid Rahman al Everything the Kash Baruch does is for the best. When we understand it, when we don't understand it, sometimes we try to attribute meaning. When it came to Chorba Mesa Mikdash, the first temple, the second temple, Chazal explained, in the, the, in the case of the first temple's destruction, the, the, the Tanakh itself explains, 
and um, and then Chazal will explain the second destruction, Sinas Chinam, and other explanations. When it came time for the Inquisition, the expulsion from Spain, so the the, the Rishonim explained to us, uh, on the verge of Achronim, they understood that this was all because of the assimilation, the study of philosophy. There was there seemed to be some sense to be made of the tragedy. Um, this is a harder one. Tachvitat, really, the, the, the victims were most of the Jews in Poland. And in Poland, as we described yesterday, the Jews were generally Yerish, Yerish Shemayim. They're good people, trying to lead good, good Torah lives, learning, keeping mitzvahs. And, uh, and so we simply don't have a, a strong finger to point or a, 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 way of, a way of understanding this. For people of less imuna, and they exist, and they, they do exist in different generations. So this will cause a crisis of faith, and might be seen as one of the antecedents to the unfolding of modernity and increasing secularism, sec secularization. Most Jews accepted their fate as Hashem's will. What will definitely be true for a lot of people is um, there'll be increased interest in the study of, what would you guess? Philosophy. No, not philosophy. What addresses deep suffering and deep issues in life and, and is just exploding all around the world still the last century or two? Kabbalah. Kabbalah, well, the interest in Kabbalah to try to put, make meaning, make sense of our ongoing suffering and our ongoing exile becomes all the more urgent. At the same time that all this is going on in Eastern Europe, uh, the various developments in the West continue and I'm going to introduce the figure of Baruch Spinoza now. Very briefly. His dates are 1632 to 1677. Um, he too is called a kofer, a heretic, uh, but he'll have an immensely greater influence than people like Uriel de Costa, who we met earlier. Spinoza is understood in the world as one of the definitive philosophers of all time. He's, he's from the Spanish, again, a, a Spanish refugee. He's, he's, he's in Amsterdam. He's, I think you could say, without exaggerating, who's Baruch Spinoza? He's credited with laying the foundation for, get all this, the Enlightenment, for the advent of modern rationalism, the movement of modern rationalism that breeds the movement of modern atheism. Realize atheism, atheism as an ism as a phenomenon, almost didn't exist in the pre-modern world. People were of religious faith. I mean, that could be Christian, Muslim, Jewish, it could be idolatrous, but they subscribed to something. Atheism, right, or, or agnosticism, absence of that faith, that's an invention, that's, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a new phenomenon, and even though Spinoza didn't invent it, and all forces in history have to be understood organically as leading one to the other. That's one of the reasons why I'm encouraging you to kind of stick with this and see all of these pieces as, as filling out a, a total tapestry. It's incorrect to say that Spinoza created the Enlightenment and the ensuing secularism of, of the times, but he played a major role, and he's certainly a major catalyst. Um, people say because of all that, he creates a whole, or he's at least a major architect of the coming revolutions. And the world becomes increasingly revolutionary. Picture this now, right? Spinoza's the mid-1600s. 
And so what follows in the form of the American Revolution and the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, these are, these are times of upheavals. Um, he also, and let's say in a, in a central way, will be a figure of antagonism towards not just the church, but any organized religion anywhere in the world. Um, he also will lay the foundation for, there's no such thing in these days yet, but um, later biblical critics will cite inspiration of Spinoza in their biblical criticism. Are you familiar with the field of biblical criticism? Yeah. Seeing the Tanakh not as from not, not coming from the Kaddish Baruch Hu, but having been written by authors, most classically the JPD and E, the, the four different authors they claim that wrote the Torah, human authors. So one finds the basic infrastructure, the foundation of biblical criticism already in the, in the philosophy of Spinoza. Say it again? The fur plus the fire of the guy who... Uh, yeah, the one, the one who puts it all together. Okay, so and there are various versions. I simplify it, but this is not a time to talk about biblical criticism, just to talk about its antecedents. Um, early in his education, he questioned the authenticity of the, of the Tanakh. He was a Jewish guy, right? But he questioned the whole thing. He questioned the Hashem's nature. And um, when he was 23 years old, the church... He's, he's outspoken, he writes books, and he writes against Judaism and Christianity, and the church is threatened by him, and he, they put him in cherem. So I guess the church still hasn't learned their lesson from Martin Luther. They excommunicate him, and they ban his books, of course. And of course, like we saw with Martin Luther, that just creates a mystique. And because Amsterdam is liberal and free, he can he's okay. He's able to maintain... Uh, his life, he was, see, part of the problem is he, he created a whole mystique around himself. He had a very strong moral character that was recognized as, as unusual. He was a simple lens grinder. He helped make glasses. People offered him prestigious <coughs> positions and lots of money, and he turned it down. Meaning, he took on the role of the classic tzaddik, the simple anav, and he learned Jewish sources, so he had a knowledge of good midos, and he used that to almost become his own messianic type figure, if you want to consider it messianic, if you call modern secularism messianic, and it is. It has the trappings of its own religion. If you, if you look at it, it's an idealism that's based on man can do it, mankind, at this point it's not, it's not feminist, so we can still say mankind, right? Mankind has, has all the inner strength and resources to you know, change the whole world, and we can do this. We have to overthrow the tyranny of corruption, of organized religion, of, 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 the, of church and state. I mean, you realize the American Revolution, the separation of church and state, was all very much a part of all of these ideas, and you find, it's, you find many of the roots in Spinoza's writings. And his personality was, he was almost, he was this uh, mythic figure, this legendary figure to, uh, to, to add, add a mystique to, to the whole experience. His, um, he was wealthy from his family inheritance, and he gave it all away. We see, I mean, the Kherim would backfire. He became one of the fundamental um, modern thinkers. Um, if you go to the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue, which still stands today, um, you can see they proudly have displayed the directory that includes members from the past. And you can still see there in the, mem in the membership book his name, Baruch Spinoza, that was officially crossed out, which signifies his Kherim. 
But ironically, today, that's the tourist attraction. Oh, look, everybody, how cute. The rabbis crossed out Spinoza's name, and in crossing out his name, it, get him all, it got him all the attention, which is really what Kherim does. Ilan, were you hoping for something else or more? Um, no, I, was there anything, like, I remember, do you know, or what can you say about, like, I remember he challenged, like, Descartes as far as, like, the... Challenged the Descartes as far as... The oh, for sure. No, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not because, I, other than saying the general ideas, yeah. for our purposes, it doesn't really lead to much. I mean, I mean even though the man was brilliant, and, 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 let's say, formally in his philosophy, had a lot to say on that level, but, you know, today, most of his content is ignored. The end result is secularism, which is pretty shallow in terms of content. Was, so there, any, was there any challenge to him from, like, any major rabbis? Like, you know, written work? Uh, yeah, at, at that point already, it was, it was at that point they started to recognize that the, the, sometimes the best response is silence. Your your insight by by Uriel um, Lacosta uh, maybe maybe a little bit too uh, late. Finally, for today, uh, the um, and and everything I just said is critical. The whole the whole painting the scene, especially Tachtetat in the background, is critical to understand uh, this unprecedented phenomenon of Shabtai Tzvi, who is a debacle and a, and 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 a series of incidents that if you've never learned about it before, fasten your seatbelts. It's a, it's a it's a shocking story, series of stories. I'm going to try to convey it as best I can um, in a short time. The uh, and 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 again, without understanding Shabtai Tzvi, I don't know how you understand what unfolds after that in in modern Jewish history. I don't think you understand. Um, the advent, the, the struggle between the Hasidic and the Misnagdish communities, um, the later reform and, and the, the other subsequent liberal movements that break away from, from, uh, from the formal Torah world um, without understanding the impact that Shabtai Tzvi would have. He was born, his dates are 1626 to 1676, 50 years. He's born in a place in Turkey called Smyrna. He claims that he was born on the night of Av. Huh. Right, why is that? Why is that a chuckle? Tisha B'Av is, 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 is when we understand the Mashiach will be born. So this, of course, will be part of his mystique. Now, yeah. In other words, from our destruction will rise our ultimate redemption. Right. I thought that it's... Mashiach happened on Tisha B'Av, not necessarily he's born. He's born then. I mean, and it may be that he lied. We have no way of verifying that they don't have the records. Now... Who is Shabtai Tzvi? He's a, he's a fellow who's proficient in Talmud, but he also was very drawn to the Kabbalah. And Kabbalah, um, his use of Kabbalah will be one of the reasons that Kabbalah falls under, let's say, um, question increasingly in the Jewish world, where Kabbalah can be and misused in a very potent way. Uh, he marries twice, but he was a loner. And in each instance, he didn't consummate the marriage. And of course, you can't be married if you don't consummate the marriage. So both marriages ended in divorce. He's, he's strange. From the early part of his life, he doesn't have friends. When he was... Hold on. Not quite. No, he's really unpredictable. If you've never heard about this... No. When he was 20, he sinks into what's described as a depression which alternates with periods of frenzied ecstasy. 
probably today uh, we would say he's something like bipolar if we had to give him some some modern uh, psychological classification. It's around this part, this this time that he begins eating non-kosher food and committing other averas, but he does it religiously. Meaning his intention, he's deliberate, and he feels that he's onto something. And it's accompanied, this irreligious behavior is accompanied by extreme religious behavior. So you couldn't just write him off as somebody who just left the way, left the fold. He, for example, um, was uh, emphasized the importance of purity and compulsively toiled in a mikvah. He involved, engaged in self-flagellation. He liked to torture himself, he liked to fast. And the progression is a logical progression, if you think about this psychologically. People who knew him initially thought of him as strange. And as he continued and he spiraled down, they started to think about him as being strangely holy. And then eventually, he was finally perceived as pious, messianic. Can you see the progression? Yeah. And, you know, if you could understand the mindset of the people in these days, in these so difficult days that the Jews around the world are still reeling from the events, the Spanish expulsion is not that old, the Smolensky massacres are utterly fresh in people's memories, and they're hungry for a Mashiach. And he fills the void. Now, it's not just Tachvetat. This is a time of Christian millennialism, where the Christians have a notion that Yashka's coming back. That's, a, that's something in the world that waxes and wanes. It comes and goes with the tides of history. But in the, in the 17th century, there's absolutely a millennialism, a, a field. That's what explains the ensuing, or is a part of the ensuing colonialism. The various Christian powers that try to go around the world, capturing the world, feeling that if somehow they can form the world empire under a dominion of Christ, as they, as they would have it, so somehow that'll, that'll facilitate Yashda's second coming. So that's very much in the air. So people are talking about Mashiach. It's certainly related to, at the same time, we, we met Rav Menashe ben Yisrael in Amsterdam. He's certainly thinking in Messianic terms when he appealed to Oliver Cromwell, please let the Jews in. Um, there's a, an obscure reference in the Zohar that it could be interpreted as indicating that the Mashiach is supposed to appear in the year 1648, the same year as the outbreak of Tachvetat. And some people understand that from that that Mashiach is around the corner. And indeed, in 1648, Shabtai is only 22 years old, but it's at that time he starts referring to himself as Mashiach. He would go around pronouncing Hashem's holy name, the same name that only the Kohen Gadol says on Yom Kippur, the Beis Mikdash, he'll start saying it, and either causing a scandal and, a, and, 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 and condemnation, or again, leaving a question in the minds of the people around them, hey, maybe this guy's for real, and wouldn't it be great if he was? But he's still young. At 22, they dismiss, most people dismiss him. His impact at this point is minimal. He's mostly treated with suspicion, and um, eventually there's a cherem, lots of cherems in these days, right? There's an excommunication by the rabbinate of Smyrna in Turkey, and ultimately they exile him in 1651. Get lost. 
and it starts his um, a phase in his life as being an itinerant, an itinerant uh, traveler, a wanderer, and he moves around the world, and he starts to establish certain connections. And by 1658, by the end of Tachatat, he's now established a base of followers in Salonika, in the city of Salonika, Salonika in Greece. He uh, now has a whole shtick. He's like a traveling circus. He performs mystical events. Kind of, right? False messiahs do these things. So, for example, he'll have public, he'll get married publicly to the Ein Sof. Remember, the Ein Sof is one of the deep Kabbalistic ideas of infinity that comes in the world. And he gets married to the Ein Sof, whatever that means. In the event, apparently he had an enchanting voice, mesmerizing, and he would sing. And his songs offered incorporated uh, Spanish love songs and Tehillim. And it was a potent cocktail. And again, you'd be watching, and there's something that happens in the mind. You think, wow, this is just outrageous. This is ludicrous. It just must be true. And people started to fall for him. Rabbis in Salonika then exile him. And so he, said, he says, okay, I'll go traveling some more. You realize he's going to get an audience wherever he goes. 1663, he settles in Yerushalayim. And he raises money in Yerushalayim to pay off the community debts to the Turks. And that, of course, endears him to everybody. You know, if you can, if you can get us out of a, a state of uh, persecution, then we love you. He then moves to Cairo. And when he's in Cairo, he meets Sarah. Sarah is uh, an orphan girl whose family was wiped out in Tafatat. And because she had no money, she was in a brothel. She's a prostitute. Sarah has her own, I mean, I don't know what we'd say with, I mean, psychologists would have a field day with all of these characters, but she has her own images. And one of them is that one day she knew this prostitute would marry the Mashiach. Uh, and they get married. Indeed. Shabtai marries Sarah. He actually gets married to her? Yeah. And um, he actually, this time, he, apparently they consummate, apparently. Um, and people tell the story, including the fact that she was a, a, a harlot, and that somehow increases the appeal of it. Somehow her former vice makes the whole thing sound more legitimate. If you know anything about Christianity, Mary Magdalena was a prostitute who joined Yashka. She didn't marry him exactly, but joined, became part of the central part of the following. And this idea of a, uh, you know, the, uh, of redeeming the lowest elements of society as being central to messianic thought would legitimate the whole thing. Now, now, accompanied by his new wife, uh, Shabtai returns to Eretz Yisrael, and this time he passes through Gaza and he meets the most important person in his life, in the form of one Nasan Binyamin Levi, Rav Nasan of Gaza, not Rav, Nasan of Gaza who becomes, I guess the best way to describe Nasan is he's the official promoter. No, and I don't know if any of you are considering going into the field of being a false messiah, but in case you were, no false messiah can be without a good PR man. Public relations is critical, and Nasan's the man for the job. Uh, Nasan says that he, he understands he also dabbles in Kabbalah. He calls himself a Gilgul, a reincarnation of Eliyahu and Navi. And why is that significant? 
Right. Remember Eliyahu, one of the critical roles he plays in history is he's going to be a harbinger, a forerunner of the final Messianic era. So if Nasan is Eliyahu and Shabtai is Mashiach, you got a whole package. And then Sarah, the prostitute, the wife, you got like a whole miniseries going for you. At this point, though, how can very believable. I know. So, Hold on. Let me let me let me continue. Ask me questions if you have, and I, I'm going to do my best not to keep you late. But I'd like to complete Shabbat's speed today. Uh, you'll see it makes a lot of sense when you see the. I mean, none of it makes sense, but all of it makes sense when you see the whole picture. Now, um, Nelson of Gaza. It's not so clear if you study what happened. If you study the, the, the historical accounts, he may have been a lunatic. I mean, it seems Shabbat's fee was. He also may have been a charlatan. In which case, that means he knew exactly what he was doing and he was cynical. He might have been both, right? What's entirely possible is that at first they started it out as a ruse, as, a, as, a, uh, as, as something that, you know, a way of getting attention, of, of making money, of, of convincing people. It's also entirely possible that at one point they started to believe it themselves. Because people involved in such an enterprise who attract such a following and you're, you're, you're faithful, your worshipers are so sincere, you start to believe it yourself. You fall for the whole, the whole scam that you put out on everybody else. You, you become one of the victims of it. 1665 is a major turning point. They announced that in the next year, in 1666, um, the days of Mashiach would come. It's all imminent. These are Ikfas of the Mashiach, and the Mashiach is around the corner. Shabtai, it was announced, would conquer the world bloodlessly. Of course, the lost ten tribes are coming back, and they predicted that they would ride a lion with a seven-headed dragon in its jaw. Great images, right? Capture the imagination of a generation, and they did. And again, it's either so fantastic, literally fantastic, it's stuff of fantasy, that you dismiss it or you fall for it. And what are your options in such a world? And the, the, the whole story goes viral. They're widely circulated, and Jews around the world start embracing the idea, never having even met Shabbat Zia, just, just, just hearing the stories. Um, the rabbis in Yerushalayim are threatening to put him to cherem, not only Shabbat Zia, certainly, but anybody who would follow him. So now the entire group returns to Smyrna, where Shabbat Zia was born. And they claim now, the new, their new version of events is Yushalayim is not going to be the future center point of Mashiach. That's going to be Gaza, which is convenient. That's where Nassim's from. That'll be the holy city. Um, they get back to Smyrna, and when they, when they arrive, he is greeted by throngs of followers. It was they heard about that. They got message in advance that he's coming. And when he finally comes, throngs come out. Remember, this is the place that they... Couple th uh, many years earlier, they, they had exiled him, and now he comes back to a massive following. They sing, they shout, Yechi Melech Meshichenu, long live the King, our Messiah. I don't know if you have modern images of certain elements within Chabad that come out in your mind, but the parallel seems to be there. Is he, did he trace his uh, back to David? Uh, that's what he claimed. Okay, they called him, one nickname for Shabtai he was Amira, which is an abbreviation for Adonenu Malkenu Yorum Hodo. Our master, our king, let his, 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 his uh, eminence be exalted. Uh, he is so powerful now, now that he's back in Turkey, he's able to overwhelm the opposition, and there are rabbis in the opposition. 
one of them, and this is a little tricky, I'm going to try to say it the best if I understand it. There's a gadol who lives in Turkey at the time. His name is Rav Chaim Ben Venisti. He wrote a classic till today on halacha called the Knesset Sagadola. And he was in the opposition. And it seems that he was swept along together with those who supported him. I hesitate before saying, I don't know if the Knesset Skidola would actually have supported Shabtai Tzvi or he would have perceived that it would have been dangerous to his life to have said anything. But um, these, are, these are very, very difficult times. Um, we have other prominent names who, who seem to have come out in support of Shabtai Tzvi. Rav Yitzhak Abuhab of Amsterdam, uh, one of the descendants of the great Galanti family, Rav Moshe Galanti II, uh, a student, a Kabbalist who had learned by the students of Rav Chaim Vital and Rav Moshe Zakuto seemed to come out in support of Shabtai Tzvi. But it's not just rabbis. You got Jews far and wide. We know there was a phenomenon in Italy. There were Jews in Germany who, who recognized that Shabtai Tzvi was now the Mashiach. Uh, the Netherlands was a major center, center of Sabbateanism. In fact, in Spinoza's letters, in Baruch Spinoza's letters, uh, one addresses a correspondent who, who has an ecstatic call to join the redemption. Come, Baruch, you have to join the Messiah. The Messiah is here. Come back to your faith. Now, more fantastic reports are spread, including, I'm quoting, in North Scotland, a ship, this is what people were talking about. These are the legends that are circulating. A ship appears with silken sails and ropes manned by Hebrew-speaking sailors and a flag inscribed in it the 12 tribes of the Jews. And it's sailing from Scotland, which in people's mind is the end of the world. They weren't thinking of the Americas in these days so much. Scotland is the, is the end. And they're all coming back for Kibbutz Galios. Um, remember the Pope's Jews in Avignon in France? The little community that was kept so that they wouldn't be wiped out? So they start preparing to make Aliyah in 1666. They're going to join the, the crusade. Um, now, Shabtai Tzvi makes several changes, and people follow them. He's influential around the world. Not everybody, but there's, a, there's an immense following. He says that the fast days of Asar B'Tevis and Tisha B'Av now are going to be days of Simchan celebration, which is what Chazal predict will become when, when Mashiach comes. Um, many of the rabbis who are in the opposition are threatened with their lives. Some of them barely escape with their lives. The Taz is an old man up in Poland during this, and of course he hears the commotion. He's unwell, so he sends his son and his stepson, his stepson down to Turkey to investigate. In 1666, everything is coming out of this year, 1666, and they're sent to investigate. Here's what we know. They come back with gifts from Shabtai for the Taz. They say that they were impressed with what they saw. They bring a letter from Shabtai Tzvi promising to avenge all the wrong, wrongs done to Polish Jews. This is 1666, this is just after Tachbetat. And this is the message they get from a figure who claims to be Mashiach. Sounds good. Um, we don't know anything else. The Taz dies the next year. Um, he never endorsed Shabtai Tzvi, but Shabtai Tzvi claims he did. And he'll, def he'll definitely use this story as in to feed into his whole campaign uh, as if he got a haskama, an endorsement from the Taz. In early 1666, the Sh goes to Istanbul, Kushta, and uh, it's there that the Sultan has had enough. 
because you know the non-Jewish world is watching all of this and they're not very happy about it. They're not, thank you very much, really interested in a Jewish Mashiach in any shape or form. Uh, so the Sultan has Shabtai thrown in jail. And this does not discourage his followers. Uh, they send him huge sums of money. He uses the money to win favors with officials in jail. And he's doing just fine. He's set up in a nice, comfortable surrounding. And he keeps up the ruses himself being Mashiach. Nasan, meanwhile, outside, Nasan of Gaza, circulates miraculous tales that Shabtai performs while he's in jail. At this point, while in jail, he's not, he's, he's sort of on house arrest. He's not really locked up. Um, he is able to continue his public displays. He, at this point, will go out publicly and do acts of immodesty and prove that that means that he's Mashiach. He'll do, here's the following episode. Are you with me here, Akiva? Yeah. Okay. He shechts a korban Pesach and eats its chalib, its fats, which are a Torah prohibition. And before he eats, he shechts a korban Pesach, but then proceeds to do a terrible prohibition. He eats the fats, and before eating the fats, he says, the fats, he says, Baruch Hashem, with Hashem's name, Hamatir es ha'asr, who permits that which is forbidden, and that's proof that he's Mashiach. Because everything that the Messianic era he claims is now going is, is now being inverted. And, you, and, and doing Averas are signs, therefore, that he's the true thing. And again, the more outlandish his behavior, the somehow in a twisted way of human nature, the more likely people are to believe him. It's at this point that in almost every shul in Europe, you find Shabtai sees initials posted with all kinds of exultant praises. Um, we have evidence of lots of lots of uh, archaeological evidence. There's Sidurim that feature his printed picture, his next to Dovin Melech. All kinds of examples still exist today. You can see up in Moravia, for example, in Germany, the uh, government has to intervene. Jews are fighting in the streets over Shabtai Tzvi. Um, meanwhile, in Saleh in Morocco, in North Africa, the um, Jews are exulting, and the emir has to persecute, has to descend upon the Jews to get them to calm down. So literally, this is one of those rare instances where international Jewry, in a terrible way, is set on fire. And back in Turkey, the Sultan is not happy, and he's growing impatient. And on in the same year, 1666, on September 16th, he publicly arranges the conversion of Shabtai Tzvi to Islam. And Shabtai goes along with it. And he publicly accepts Islam and Muhammad and all the rest upon himself and, at the Sultan's insistence, starts to mock Torah. This is the Messiah for you, folks. Um, the Sultan gives him a title. He's called now Effendi. Sarah converts to Islam and about 300 families of his followers convert. Um, by the way, their descendants still exist. They're called the Dunmen. Um, they, they believe the Shabtai was Mashiach. They have annual conventions in places like Washington, D.C., but Good men. Look them up. This is the peace. This is the time of peace. Or yeah. No uh, so, the, but they all become Muslims. Now, think about this. What do you do? What does Nasan of Gaza do? What does the movement do? Your putative Mashiach has uh, converted to Islam. He's reviling the Torah. For many of the followers, Baruch Hashem, they're devastated, but they realize the whole thing was a hoax. A terrible, bitter hoax that got their hopes up, but okay, they realized they'd been fooled. 
But many continue to believe, now stay with me on this, Nassim of Gaza ad adopts a brilliant bullying kind of logic where he says, yeah, this is a test of the faithful. The harder things get, the more you're put to the test, and it's to show that if you really, really believe, uh, you'll, stay, you'll stay loyal to Shabtai's feet till the very end. And people again buy into the logic, partly because they just want to, they need to. They're waiting for Mashiach. And uh, by the end, the Turks get tired of Shabtai's many schemes, they cut off his salary, they exile him to isolation, and in 1676, 10 years later, he dies mysteriously. He was probably killed. We don't know. And you know what Nassim of Gaza does? Turns to his followers, and there's a big crew of them out there, says, another test of the faithful, because Mashiach will come back. Does this sound familiar? 1990s, anybody? anybody anybody's death come to mind? Yeah. He's coming back to life. Or really, does it come to mind? Yashkun. Yashkun will come back. Right? Well, because it's all connected. Right? There's no source for a dead Mashiach coming back to life. Chabad, some Chabad tried to prove that. It's not legitimate. Um, there, is, there are some heroes. I'm keeping you over time. I'm only a couple minutes until I'm finished. One of the heroes, really the chief critic all along, was a great man of Amsterdam named Rav Yaakov Sasportas. Uh, he's one of the few to oppose Shabtai. Um, he, he goes around Europe trying to expose hidden believers, because now believers start to go underground. And ultimately they drive him out of Amsterdam. He runs, he's one of those who has to run for his life. Amsterdam's a big stronghold of Shabtai Tzvi supporters. Um, Tomorrow, we're going to talk about the lasting influence of Shabtai Tzvi uh, and the long-term ramifications, um, and they're deep and, and, and wide, and they affect us till today.